Romans 12, I want to read to you verse 9 to uh, verse 13. And uh, yeah, let's just read. Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The, the chapter, as I understand how Romans works, is that in Romans 1 to 11, Paul's been kind of outlining salvation, what it means to be saved. And so many of the verses that you would know um, come from Romans, of, in terms of one, just language that resonates with your mind and your spirit about the wages of sin is death, and the free gift of God is eternal life, and all this language. It's all in Romans. And then he gets to the end, as Paul usually does in his letters, and he wants to take the idea of salvation and then show how it works its way out in the life of the community and in your individual life as well. So throughout this chapter, what we've been thinking about was, first of all, that you become a worshiper. When you know that you're loved by God, your heart turns outwards in worship towards him. You, know, you offer your life as a living sacrifice. And if you don't do that, then it does put a question on whether you really grasped what the gospel was in the first place. You can see the evidences, can't you? And this is the great the question of what Romans 12 is answering. is what kind of a person do you become when you believe the gospel? You become a worshiper. It's, it becomes almost automatic in the sense that your life is poured out to God. Then you, you find that you have these passions and gifts that you want to offer up to God. Uh, your, your body and gifts and life become an act of worship in terms of your service of him. And Tim was just talking to us about the gifts of the Spirit yesterday. And then we come to this third aspect here, which is that you become loving towards other believers, particularly also towards the world. But there is a, a love which starts to bind you to the church family and the thing I want you to grasp at the very beginning is that this is, this is a supernatural aspect of the Christian life. You remember in Galatians 5 when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, in other words, these are not fleshy things. These are not things which you could just produce in yourself. He lists them as the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. But the first of them is love. And the reason why we need to stress that is because I think you could, you could almost switch off at this point and think, well, this is... Not only obvious, but also easy. And I don't think the Bible shows us that. I think it shows us that the quality and the kind of love which the New Testament advocates is not only supernatural, but it's also impossible, except by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life and in your heart. I think that's why Jesus says in John 13 that by this will all men know that you are my disciples because you have love for one another. And it doesn't make any sense, does it, unless the love which exists within the church community is a supernatural thing and something which is inexplicable on human and fleshy terms for whatever reasons. But people should look at it and it should strike them as something extraordinary and unusual. Otherwise, it makes no sense what Jesus says. That by this will all men know that you're my disciples. Well, it should be something that's noticed. It's something that stands out, something that's extraordinary when the world looks at the life of the church there was, actually, uh, Tim mentioned yesterday 
the apologist um, and evangelist Francis Schaeffer. Now, Schaeffer was this kind of quirky American guy with a little goatee beard and strange, crazy hair. And he wore, um, he, he went to live in, in Switzerland in the Alps. And he wore like Swiss clothes, like socks up to his knees and, and lederhosen and all the rest of it. And he looked, he looked pretty weird, to be honest. But he had this extraordinary ability to um, understand the issues of our times, or certainly in his times, because he was in the sort of 60s and 70s. And loads and loads of people started to come to his house. He had an open home policy. Um, they called their home Lebri, which means the shelter. And people would travel long distances on spiritual quests to come and sit with them uh, evening after evening and just do kind of family discussion. And people would raise whatever questions they wanted and they'd talk for hours long into the night about, um, about philosophy and about Christianity, about the evidences of the faith. And Schaefer would listen, 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 and then he would, he would sort of help people understand a way through until after days or weeks, people staying with them, many, many hundreds, perhaps thousands of people became Christians or discovered what their faith meant for them if they were already Christians, but wrestling with doubts. And this was his ministry to the world. He wrote a bunch of books, put them out there as well. And so Schaefer, of all people who lived in the last century, he stands out of one of these guys who was a thinking Christian. He understood his faith and he made it understood to a generation of people. He gave Christians reasons to believe and was massively influential in that. But he also had a lot to say about the importance of Christian community, about the quality of the love that exists in this church family. And he put it like this. He said, he said, let us be careful Indeed, to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. For years, the Orthodox Evangelical Church has done this very poorly. So he's saying, absolutely, we need to know our faith and we need to know what it has to say to the world we're in. But then he added this, but after we've done our best to communicate to a lost world, still, we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. The final apologetic, the final thing which persuades a non-believer that Jesus is Lord, that his spirit rules and reigns in his church, is when they look at the body of Christ and they see the love, the tangible love that we have for one another. I want to... When Paul opened this paragraph, he says, let love be genuine. This should give you a clue as to the the supernatural aspect of this love. Because we cannot settle for anything that just looks like love on a facade, on the facade. That's politeness, that's kind of niceness, that's shallowness. The word he uses is how do you say this? (laughs) Anupokritos, which is without hypocrisy. Let it be sincere, unfeigned, not fake. When that kind of love is, is operating in a church, it is a supernatural thing. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's something which we want to keep crying out to God for and pursuing with all of our hearts. And so what I'm trying to say to you is not only is it supernatural, but it's impossible for me to overstate just how important this is to Jesus. Even that he spent so much time in that final 
those final words to his disciples when he had that Passover meal and in John 13, how he emphasized to them, just love each other, love one another. And really, you'd come away from a weekend like this thinking, having gained nothing if we are not more determined to pursue the love for one another. I want to show you just from this paragraph, I think the whole paragraph is about love, different aspects of what it means for us to become loving people. I want to show you the five things about this love um, that I think Paul is, is, is urging us towards. Here's the first. The real love is, is holy, because he says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Holiness and love, I don't think, always belong together in our minds. They feel like oil and water, don't they? Because on the one hand, you think a loving world is a world in which um, there is no emphasis on, on holiness and purity because those things tend to divide us, it seems, and they turn you into judgmental people if you emphasize love and purity and all that kind of stuff. So the imagined picture we have is that if someone cares about holiness, then they become pious and almost priggish to the point where people um, feel the prickliness and don't want to come near to them. And on the other hand, the more mushy and loving you are, the less holy or less emphasis on holiness there will be in your life. But of course, that idea of what holiness is, is not a biblical picture. It's a self-righteous, pharisaical picture. It has nothing to do with what the New Testament believes holiness is because the definition of holiness in the Bible is love. It's loving God. It's loving your neighbor. And of course, that gives birth to purity. But I, I certainly have experienced in my own life, and I think you'll identify with this immediately, that when, when there's sin in your life, it becomes so much harder to love the body of Christ for many reasons. And one of them is just that you, you become more conscious all the time of your sin, don't you? Perhaps the biggest reason is that you you feel shame. And shame has a, a separating sort of power to it. It pulls you away from brothers and sisters in Christ because you come to the body but you feel like you don't belong. And it makes it very hard to love the church when you're harboring and cherishing sin in your heart or when you, you're living in a known sort of situation of, of rebellion, really, of walking in something which you know is is that displeasing to God, but you're either determined to carry on with it or you feel that you're unable to deal with it. And we fall into different camps with these things. But if you have sin in your heart, I think it will be destructive to your ability to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just to love God, but to, to do the horizontal aspect of love. Abhor what is evil, he says. Hold fast to what is good. A clean conscience helps you to love your brothers and sisters because you know this is family and you have nothing to hide. So as we begin this, really the invitation before anything else is to step into, into holiness. I mean, I, I've spoken with or observed many Christians over the years who have kind of extracted themselves slowly from Christian community where once they might have been at the heart of things. And more often than not, the reason why people begin to extract themselves from community, maybe slowly or maybe in a jolting way, is often because there is something weighing on their conscience that makes them feel like they do not belong anymore. There can be other reasons, I grant, but 
often there's a shame factor involved. So much so that I, I, I tend to assume most times that when somebody is pulling away from the church family, it's because they're wrestling with a known sin. And I want to just make you aware of that as we start. You know, there's no way you can love the body of Christ and so please Jesus unless you are walking in repentance. And that doesn't mean perfection. It cannot mean perfection. It means repentance. It means every day bringing your sin to God and confessing it and asking for God's power to step out of it. So that when you come to be with the body, you come with a clean conscience. So you don't withdraw or, or, or separate yourself from other people. Let love be genuine. Abhor what's evil. Hold fast to what is good. Real love is holy. That's the first thing. Here's the second. I think real love is warm. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's warm. Now, when, if you were to um, ask me to uh, describe brotherly relationships... I would probably not use the word affection. I was the middle of three boys, and you experience it in different uh, dynamics, up and down with older and younger brother. But generally speaking, the word affection is not the first word that comes to mind when you're growing up with brothers. It's more words like atomic wedgie and, uh, and all kinds of meanness and violence. And uh, of course you love each other, but it's not a particularly affectionate love. certainly wasn't with me and my brothers. It was more a very much a strong pecking order that James uh, would sit on me and punch me when I had annoyed him. And I would do the same to Joshua. And um, there was just absolutely, um, it was, we, we, did, we weren't ruled by affection. And it certainly isn't the way most, I've seen most brothers work in their brotherly relationships. So when he says um, brotherly affection, what does he mean? Um, I, don't, I don't think he means atomic wedgies. I think he means something more along the lines of that in, amongst brothers you have no formality. There's, there's absolutely no formality. And there's no pretending either because brothers just see through each other. And there's no point putting on airs and graces or... You know, there is absolutely no filter with brothers. And I think that's the idea that when we come into the church, you know, we, we really should be, rather than, than stepping into your religious garb and starting to fake it when you walk into the church gathering, it should really be the other way around. That if, if you struggle with sense of identity in the world and sometimes you feel like you're faking it out there, when you come into the church, you're yourself. Because you're among brothers, you're among sisters, you're among family but there is one aspect, I think, of brotherly relationships which he is condoning here, which is competition. You know, brothers are aggressively competitive. You know, the number of times you see a board game being thrown in the air or ripped apart or, you know, something where you just think there's just so much fierce aggression and competitiveness among brothers. That this, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. It's the only time, I've said this to you before, I think it's true, it's the only time I know of in the Bible when we're told to compete with each other. And it's a competition to find your way to the lowest spot. To outdo one another in showing honor is to to look around you and think, how can I elevate those around me? In how I speak about them, in how I treat them, in how I am kind towards them, respect them. Outdo one another, he says, in showing honor. Real, real love is not only pure, but it's also affectionate and warm. There's a warmth to us. There's no formality. It's not cold. It's not, it's not gray-suited. 
and uh, formal. Here's the third thing. Real love is passionate. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Or be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. And he uses these two words. What, the one is uh, zeal, which is the original kind of meant haste, speed, pursuit, exertion. And then this other word, fervency, which has to do with boiling or being hot, being ardent or zealous. He's using really powerful words to capture the kind of emotional, the emotional temperature of the church. What does being zealous and passionate um, have to do with love in the church? Well, think about it negatively for a minute. When you meet an unfeeling Christian, a Christian who's, you know the word apathetic, pathetic or pathos is to do with emotions and apathetic is to to be to be drained of emotion to become flat emotionally when you meet an apathetic christian apathetic towards god and apathetic towards the church you know that something's gone wrong spiritually because the bible commends godly emotion and jesus modeled it the more perf- most perfect emotional life of any man who ever lived. Zeal for your house consumes me. You saw his, the outburst of passion when he went in and found the money changes in the temple. Zeal for your house consumes me. Boiling passion for God. And how when he was with the crowds who came to him with their sick and with their, with their, with their brokenness of spirit... You know how the New Testament talks about Jesus having the spanknoi, the bowels of compassion, that he felt deep in his gut a love for people around him. There was nothing apathetic about Jesus. And to be apathetic is to be spiritually cold. So when, when Paul's telling us here, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit or in the spirit, I think he's saying that we need the spirit of Jesus in us to be to be totally passionate about loving one another. One of the great, greatest images of passion, actually just refer again to my brothers, is my older brother. He is nothing if he is not a passionate man. He's, he's massive and he, he weighs about five stone more than I do. And um, he's a big guy, intimidating guy, but he, he cries easily, which I always love to laugh at because... Um, <laughs> You know, because we're brothers, I suppose. But, you know, he, he cries at films. He cries, he cries when his children do anything remotely cute. Um, he, he is a passionate man. And one of the things that, um, abiding memory of my life was when we were on holiday in the Lake District many years ago. And um, he, he would have been, we would have been teenagers at the time. I was probably about 16 or something like that. And he would have been a few years older. And uh, we went on one of those rowing boats on the Lake Derwent. Um, and it's a massive long lake. I'm not sure um, how long, but it's, it's a few kilometers long. And this thing is um, it, it's huge. And you, the, the idea is when you get one of these rowing boats is you're meant to just chill, right? You kind of you jump in the boat and then you lay back and you just sort of bob along on the water. And you enjoy it for your one-hour booking. And then you, you check in and you feel like you've really just you've unwound. It's like just a meditative experience. Not, not with James. When James got into the rowing boat, 
he made it his goal that we were going to get to the other end of the lake and back within the one hour because we were not going to pay for two hours. So the image in my mind is burned into my retinas as of him red-faced and sweating as he was rowing and rowing and rowing. We're having this relaxing time on Lake Derwent and he's using every ounce of energy in his being to get us to the other end of the lake and back. And we made it by God's grace and time. We only paid for the one hour. But that is passion for you. That is red-hot zealous passion towards a totally useless end, I'll admit. But, but that's the image, I think, of what it means to be engaged with the community of God, that you're not an apathetic person. You're not cold. You're not cool. That, that for you, um, you know, whether it takes the expression of bouncing up and down in your Reebok classics at the back or, uh, or whatever it is, but there's passion in you. You care. You care. There's fervency of spirit. Um, you know, this is so important to state because a lot of people think that, that, that love should just happen, you know, that we kind of slip into community. And, uh, and you know, when, when people join a church, you know, often one of the experiences people have is, you know, that they're not quite sure how to engage with the life of the community. But it, it can often be your own fault if you just come and you're kind of, you know, sat there just watching and not really leaning in. And I think that's not the spiritual life. The spiritual life is, 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 is taking things with both hands. It's jumping in with both feet. You know, when people are in a church, but they're, they're sort of casually committed to Sundays and casually committed to community, whether it's in life groups or in a more informal, organic sense, um, I, you know, I, I wonder what's going on with you. I wonder what's going on with you spiritually. Because the image I have of the church is... Well, primarily in Jesus. You look at how he is with his disciples. He is, he, is, he is for them and he is with them. His presence matters. And when he formed the church, the church had to be with one another. They were meeting together daily and breaking bread in their homes. There is no way that you can form this community of love unless you are with one another and unless your whole soul, heart and mind is engaged with loving the people of God. There's no way. And there's an invitation as well as a bit of a, a challenge for us, friends, that it's, it's wonderful and easy when you're in each other's company like this on a weekend away. But when we go back into London, we must be intentional. We must recognize that Jesus wants us to love the church with passion and zeal and fervency. Here's the fourth thing. Um, that real love is, is hopeful and positive. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I think the image we have here is, um, is of somebody who kind of brings, brings joy to the community. And I don't mean all the time, and I don't mean in, in, in the sense that you have to be fake when life gets on top of you, but I mean that the general tenor and pattern of your life is that when you are among the believers, people are happier because you're there. And, and th- this is a spiritual quality. We don't tend to think of it as a spiritual quality, do we? But think about this. If you're a persistently kind of negative and miserable person, um, I I doubt that you're particularly loving. But more than that, have you noticed how how a whining person, it becomes contagious, doesn't it? You probably notice this particularly at work, that when, when you start to get some whining going on in the office, it's contagious. Everybody starts whining. And it goes from one to the other, and we all start seeing things through this negative lens. It's also just depressing, steals joy. 
But more than that, I think the Bible shows us that when you get into the sink, into this kind of miserable, whining mentality, it is an atheistic way of thinking. It's an atheistic way of thinking. And the reason I say that is because you remember in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul's talking about the experiences of the Israelites in the wilderness, one of the things he points to, uh, he, he talks about idolatry and making the golden calf and sexual morality. And then he lists with that, he says that we mustn't put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Um, or Sorry, destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So when, when the Israelites were wandering around in the desert and they started to grumble... That, that was all bound up with them slipping into idolatry and not believing in the living God anymore. And when, when a kind of a downbeat, um, persistently miserable negative attitude settles in your spirit, your problem is, is a sin problem. And it's also a form of atheism because whatever God you believe in is not the God who is the Father who loves you and cares for you and is for you and with you and has ordained your circumstances and, and your steps in life and is, 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 is plotted a way forward for you, right? Now, the flip side to that is that when, by the grace of God, and, and for some of us, I know particularly if you're somebody who struggles with a melancholic spirit, and I've put myself in that box to some degree, and some of us struggle persistently in that way, if that's you, then you need the power of the Spirit to step into and walk in joy and bring joy to the family of God and to your, your biological family. And you think about the power that brings to other people. The images of, in my mind, are like when Moses had to hold his hands up above the battle and uh, his arms grew tired, but who were there at his side? He had Aaron and Hur at his side holding each arm up so that as long as the Israelites were fighting, Moses' arms would stay up. And the picture of Aaron and her there holding his arms is what it's like when you bring joy and hope and prayer and persistence, the kinds of things that Paul's talking about here, to the community of God. So that when you are with a brother or sister in Christ, it's like their arms are being held up. When you're with them, they feel hope again. They feel strength again flooding into their bones, even if every day is a battle, even if sin is crushing them, even if they feel that they are opposed in their family or in their workplace. When you are with them, their arms are high. Or the image, another one is of Jonathan as armor bearer. How Jonathan has this seed of an idea when he sees Philistines across the, the, uh, the ravine. And the armor bearer says to him, uh, do, do whatever is in your heart. I'm, I'm with you, heart and soul. And of course, you know, if he was a persistently negative person, he'd be like, well, Jonathan, that's a bit stupid. You know, he would have immediately peed on his bonfire and the whole thing would have fallen flat. But the armor bearer isn't like that. He's a kind of hopeful, patient, prayerful man who comes alongside Jonathan and they run at the battle. Two men against a score of enemies. When Paul was with other Christians, he was a happier man. When he was with his disciples, he was a happier man. He says in Philippians 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, or making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And friends, that should be the quality of, of the faith that we enjoy as a family. That when we're together, joy bubbles up in our hearts. And we feel hope again. We feel strength.
strength flooding our spirits for what we're to face in day-to-day life. Because some of you are facing battles that feel like, it, like someone's going to die. Like you are in, in the grip of things which you need to face and you need strength for. Do you know how much your joy can help, help your brothers and sisters? You think about how, how the effect of this can spin out in all kinds of unexpected ways. First, you, first, when you share a problem with someone, they feel that their problems are less looming. Then they feel lighter and happier because of they've shared it with you. Then they feel that they can open up more with you in future because you, you don't bring depression to the situation. You bring faith in God to the situation. Then they get a little bit less anxious than they were about what they were facing. And then they sin a little bit less. Then they get a little bit more bold and they start to do more for God. And then friends start to notice that there's a change in them. And then the friends want to know why, and they become more attractive. And then they start to do things for God that they never thought were possible. And all of it because you were a hopeful, joyful person who came alongside them. It's it's impossible to exaggerate, isn't it? The power of spirit-filled, hopeful confidence in God when when it infuses the community of God. It changes lives. It changes lives. It changes the trajectory of lives. And you are to be that person in the church. Don't think it's someone else's job. Think it's your job. Here's my last thing I want to say. Um, That real love is is generous. He closes it off. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I don't want to say too much on this except except that love is intrusive. And I mean by that that, you know, there's nothing comfortable about loving in this way. It intrudes into your most personal and private spaces. And here it's your money and your home. And I know if, 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 if these spaces are personal and private, were personal and private when Paul wrote it, it's even more so today, isn't it? Because we don't live in each other's faces in little towns and villages, we, are, we have our kind of separate dominions in which we extract ourselves and, and live private lives. But Paul's saying that when you love, when you love the church of God, it starts to intrude into the most personal and private aspects of your heart and your thinking so that your money is affected, and not just your money, but your home and you open your doors and you want to welcome people in. You remember, this is how it began. The question really to understand this chapter is, what kind of person do you become when you believe the gospel? And the gospel is about God being generous. And it's about God being hospitable. He is generous towards us and giving his son. He's hospitable because he welcomes us into his home and into his family. That is the gospel. And a Christian, therefore, is a person who mirrors the character and the example of the Father by becoming generous and open-hearted towards other people, welcoming them in. And remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25 when he talked about giving the cup of water or visiting in prison. You know, when you are generous towards a brother or sister in Christ, remember this, you're generous towards Jesus. Your kindness towards others is directly, in Jesus' mind, kindness to him. Your hospitality towards others is hospitality to him. That would change the way you think about life group, wouldn't it? 
If every time you open the door, you think, I'm welcoming Jesus into my home now. And there's already five Jesuses in my living room <laughs> eating the food. But here's another one. Welcome Jesus. Come on in. I think that's the, the mentality Christians should have. It's not easy to sustain, I'll admit. I can get fatigued. We've been li- leading life groups for close on 10 years together. And it can be fatiguing at times. But then God gives you fresh energy, fresh zeal, fresh passion. And not just for the formal stuff like that, for the informal stuff, the day-to-day. What it means to live in one another's lives and to be a family. And so friends, I hope that you kind of are stirred up. And maybe just one of those things will provoke you to think, well, what is it that's blocking me? What would help me to be a more loving brother or sister to others in the body? Do I need to repent of a known sin in my life which is separating me from the church family because every time I'm with them I feel like I don't belong? Maybe you need to confess it to a a brother, bring it into the light so that it no longer feels like it has the same power over you and certainly the shame begins to diminish and bleed out of it. Do you need to do that? Do you need to be more affectionate more passionate, more hopeful and positive, more generous? What is, it, what is it that you need to do? The Holy Spirit will undoubtedly show you. If you ask him now, Lord, how can, I, how can I be more loving towards your family? The Holy Spirit will show you. He's been showing me over the course of this weekend ways I need to change. He will show you. Why don't we just open our hands and our hearts to God? Jesus, we know that you didn't die on the cross in order that the church would be a pitiful and poor reflection of what your family is about. Dogged by religious mentality, formality, coldness of spirit, meanness, isolation, loneliness, faking it. And that all those things, Lord, have nothing to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross because you wanted us in the throne room. You wanted us to be a people who gather around the Father and love one another. And Lord, I... I recognize that we face some of the greatest challenges, practically speaking, of being a church family because of our context in some regards. And Lord, how London makes us busier than we'd like to be and more fragmented than we'd like to be. But we also see the extraordinary potential that when a church is a real church in the center of the city, it's a city on a hill. And Lord Jesus, you're going to draw people to you as you've already been doing in our church, Lord, that when people see that we love one another, they know that we're your disciples. I pray, Lord God, that you put within us renewed determination, passion and zeal to love your people in a selfless way where we pay the price. Even if in one of these areas, Lord, we know it's an uphill battle for us.
And we can all feel that, Lord. There's, there's areas of our hearts where we need to repent. But we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd help us in very concrete, real ways to make changes. So that we do not leave here the same way we came in. But that as we respond to you, Lord, and are obedient to your scriptures, your holy word, will be a church that brings you glory. That makes Jesus famous. Lord, we care nothing about being the slickest church in London. So many good things that we could be recognized or known for if we pursued it. We want to be known for being the most loving church, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that increasingly the outsider would feel welcome. And Lord, that you'll bring greater and deeper diversity to our church family that reflects not only our context but the kingdom of heaven and Lord that we will love each other in costly ways across generations across wealth gaps across backgrounds in education nationality race I pray let there be affection let there be affection and warmth that pervades this church family. We confess, Lord, our sins. Just take a moment and just confess where your sin has held you back. receive forgiveness Lord we receive power spirit fall on us we pray anoint us to love and may Lord may our love validate our worship and the use of our gifts as Paul said Lord we don't want these things to be kind of resounding gongs and clanging cymbals we don't want to sing all the greatest songs and prophesy deep mysteries but not have love, Lord. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you, this will be sustained by the power of your spirit because, Lord, we cannot do it in the flesh. It has to be you, Lord. So do it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.